Get to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We looked at Exodus chapter 34 this morning. And Paul, through inspiration, really does an expository message on Exodus chapter 34 right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I wish we had time to start all the way back at verse 5. I love that verse. It's a great reminder. Uh, We used it this morning, but we're going to start in verse 7 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 7. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more than that which remaineth, or excuse me, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Let me just stop there. I'm going to take about a half hour just to explain those first four verses. Verse 13, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for unto this day remaineth the same veil undertaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken. Not when, yeah, when it shall be turned to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's a powerful passage of Scripture. Paul's line of, of reasoning in his argument is impeccable. Uh, it, it almost sounds like we're reading in Romans. It's so logical, the progression. Uh, he starts off very quickly with three arguments on why the gospel is better than the law. He's going to finish with a powerful argument, uh, the, the fourth one that we'll hopefully have time for tonight. But I want you to see these arguments are what we call... Uh, well, I don't call it, but people that, that write on rhetorical speaking and speech, they, they call it uh, a fortoriari, and that just means from strength. And, and all that carries is, really, Paul is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He starts with something small, and he says, if this is true, then this much must be so much more true. And so let's look at the first argument, the first argument that he makes is that which gives life is better than that which brings death. Look at verse 7. It says, but if the ministration, that word uh, uh, ministration just carries the idea of ministry, okay, of service. If the ministration of death written and engraved in stones. Now, what was written and engraved in stones? We just looked at that this morning. 
It was the Ten Commandments. It was what we would collectively call the law. All right? And so the law, which was written and engraved in stones, was glorious. Now that word, glory, or really the root word, is used over a, almost 170 times, 168 times. 145 of those times it is translated, just like you see here, glory or glorious, and that's 86% of the time. And it just carries this, this idea of, of a brightness, or the Old Testament would carry the idea of a weight to it, something that uh, has honor or prestige or greatness. That is the glory that is referred to here. And so there was a glory to the law. That's what he's saying right here. But all it did was bring death. It didn't bring life. As a matter of fact, the glory that they had was so bright that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold. They couldn't gaze into the face of Moses for the glory or the brightness of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Now Paul Right, I didn't count it. I highlighted all the different times. Let's see, there's four there. There's an 8, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. At least 14 different places he uses that word glory. So don't get lost. Sometimes he's talking about the glory of God right here. He's talking about the brightness of Moses' face. But it all carries this idea of a grandeur or a splendor that is revealed by God. So he says that the children of Israel couldn't gaze into the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Now that idea done away, Paul's going to mention that three times before the end of the chapter here. And it carries the idea of being deactivated. There was a, uh, uh, back in 2017, there was a bomb found uh, through construction, I believe it was in the UK somewhere. It's like a 15 thousand pound bomb. It was huge. They had to bring some bomb experts in. They cleared out 60,000 people from the town and they had to deactivate, make sure that bomb was deactivated, something that would no longer be able to explode. It was not any longer usable. It's like flipping a switch. Every time you leave a room, you deactivate the lights. And if you're 18 and younger and you don't, you're supposed to, okay? It's amazing when people start paying their own bills, how that light switch finds its way off when they leave the room. But you're de deactivating, and that's what he's saying here. It's being done away with. It's being deactivated. It's no longer operable. There's no longer going to be a need for it. And he says, so his first argument is, how much better is something that brings life than something that brings death? His next argument is found in the beginning of verse 8. How shall not the ministration or the ministry of the Spirit be rather glorious. Now, I want you to notice, this is very, very important when we get to the end of this passage of Scripture. Uh, notice that, go all the way back to verse 6. We didn't read that. Uh, I'm going to read it now. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. He's making a comparison right here of the Spirit not necessarily talking about the Spirit of God here. He's saying that there is a ministry of spirit as composed to a ministry of law. That's very important because you, when you get to the end of the chapter right here, if we don't have that distinction, there's going to be some confusion uh, about the Lord's role and the Trinity and each one's place right there. So just file that away for just a few minutes and we'll get back to that. So he says in verse 8, 
How shall not the ministry or the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? What's the second argument? The second argument is this. The Spirit is better because when the one is compared to the other, it makes the old appear to have no glory at all. Let me explain. He says, for the ministration, in verse 9, of condemnation, be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. In verse 10, for even that which was made glorious, you know, I love English, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I'll just tell you, those five words are a translation of one Greek word. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. All right, that's the second argument. So, you say, what are you talking about? Well, he goes back in verse uh, 9, for the ministration of condemnation be glory. Remember, there is glory in the law. God reveals himself to his people. He declares his righteousness. He declares many of his attributes through the law. And so there is a glory to that. There is a splendor to it. But then he says, much more doth the ministration or the ministry of righteousness exceed in glory. So he says there is a glory to the law, but that which is now, that which you've been given now, the righteousness of God and the ministry of the righteousness, talking about what he called the spirit earlier, it exceeds it. It excels it in every way. Now, my wife is reading a book recently, and in that book, it talks about a, a woman who was getting married, and she took her sister and maybe her mom and some other people to go wedding dress shopping. She tried dress after dress after dress on. And, you know, for a guy, that just sounds painful. Okay, maybe women enjoy that. But one of the dresses they pulled out, her and her mother and even her sister thought this would look so good on her sister that her sister went back and tried on a wedding dress. It fit perfectly. It was beautiful. It was modest. And there were no alterations that were needed at all. And so her sister, who did not go out to buy a wedding dress, but went out with her sister to buy a wedding dress, bought herself a wedding dress. She didn't have a boyfriend. She certainly wasn't engaged, but she did have a wedding dress. And that dress must have been beautiful. You don't wear that to get groceries in. There's a glory to a wedding dress that is incomparable to other dresses. You understand that? But after one year went by, and one year turned into two, and two years turned into a decade, and 11 years after she bought that wedding dress, she walked down the aisle. Now, do you think she wore that wedding dress she bought 11 years ago? The answer was no. She bought a new wedding dress, one that was probably more stylish. Now, I don't know. I didn't read the book. If she still fit into the other one or not, I don't know. But here's what I'm saying. There was a glory to that wedding dress in that time and that day. It fit and it was beautiful. But there was no need for it now that she's getting married. There is a better wedding dress. There is, it, it excelled the old one so that she's only going to wear one down the aisle. And she chose the one that was new. And that's what Paul is saying. There was a glory to the law, but the Spirit now far exceeds that. 
And there's no need for that, uh, uh, for the law now, when we have grace. He gives us the third argument. He says, the Spirit is better because it replaced the law. And no matter how good the old was, the new is much more glorious. So look at verse 11. For if that which is, here's our words again, done away, deactivated, was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. I hope I don't lose some of you with this illustration. In 1953, Chevy came out for the first time ever with something called a Corvette. It had an inline six, and it could do zero to 60 in 11 to 12 seconds, somewhere in there. Ten years later, in 1963, they came out with the Corvette Stingray. It had a V8, 5.4 liter, and it could do zero to 60 in around 5.9 seconds. It's sub six, zero to 60. I mean, that's... Half, half the time, twice as fast. In 2024, there, what is that, 70 years, 80 years, 70 years? Or 2023, Corvette Z51, 6.81 liter V8, could do a sub-3, 0 to 60, 2.8. This year, they've come out with, rather than Stingray, they call it the E-Ray. 2024, I didn't write down what the engine is. It is powered in the back wheels with, I think it's a 6.8 liter V8, but it has 160 horsepower electric motors on the front wheels. And it does 0 to 60 in 2.5 seconds. That's incomprehensible. I didn't even want to see what the quarter miles were on those. I'm not sure the e-car would have enough batteries to make it a quarter mile at that kind of acceleration. But if somebody were to say, listen, I have got a 1953 Corvette, it might be nice to look at, but if you want to win the race, you're not going to pick that over the 2024 2.3, or what was it, 2.5 seconds, 0 to 60 mile uh, an hour car. That which is new is far superior to that which is old. Now, that old car has some glory to it, but it's nothing like the cars of today. Do you understand that? And that is kind of the argument that Paul is making. There was a place for the Old Testament, and there was some glory to that, but nothing compared to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what we have today. That is the arguments that he starts off with. He gave us three arguments. One, that which gives life is better than that which brings death. Number two, the spirit is better because one is compared to the other. It makes the old appear to have no glory at all. And the third argument he gives is the spirit is better because it replaces the law. And no matter how good the old was, the new will always be much more glorious. So then he says in verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. That idea of great plainness doesn't mean simple speech. It means he speaks uh, with, with candor. You know what it means? It means I'm going to speak frankly. If, if somebody comes up to you and says, I, can I be candid with you? They're usually going to tell you something you don't want to hear. Say yes, just so you can hear what they have to say, okay? Might be you have lettuce in your teeth. I don't know. 
But you want to hear what they had to say. And so Paul is writing to these New Testament believers or people that are, are interested about the gospel, but it's to the church of Corinth. And he's saying, let me be candid about the law and about grace. And then he starts this, this exposition on Exodus chapter 34. In verse 13 it says, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Now, he's saying they couldn't gaze. Remember, they couldn't gaze at Moses, but it wasn't just that they couldn't gaze upon Moses. It says that because they couldn't gaze, they couldn't see the fulfillment which was going to be fulfilled in Christ. That's what he's saying here. He's saying the end, that's the fulfillment of that which is abolished. What's abolished? The law. The law was being abolished. We don't need that anymore because of Christ. But because they, were, uh, they could not look into the face of Moses, that glory, he is likening that then to the Jews not being able to see the glory of Christ today. As a matter of fact, that's not a stretch at all. He's going to make that same argument uh, really in the coming couple of verses. Uh, let me finish by reading verse 14. But their minds were blinded, for unto this day remaineth the same veil taken away in the reading of the Old Testament. So uh, when we look at verse 14, uh, it's interesting to me that it says, were blinded. Now, if there's anyone that didn't love English in school, you're looking at him. But if we ha want to have a clear understanding of what God is saying, we need to understand uh, a little bit about whether we're doing something or something is being done to us. And what this passage is saying is that we're not blinding our own eyes. It's not as though we're covering our eyes around, but it is the fact that our eyes are being covered. Why? There's a veil there. You can't see. And so it's a passive idea. And that word for carries with it the idea of being because. All right? For this happened, or because unto this day remaineth, what's he say? The veil that blinded, uh, or, or excuse me, uh, I, missed, I got my pages backed up there. All right. Uh, for unto this day where the main, remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. I like how Paul says that. He doesn't say that they are still blinded, but the veil has not been removed, untaken away. But the veil is done away in Christ. What does that done away with mean? It means it's deactivated. It's shut off. The law was deactivated when Christ came. He makes it even more clear coming up in verse 16. But look at verse 15. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, well, but let me just say, he's saying that when the Old Testament is being read in the synagogue that, uh, or in the temple, excuse me, that they're, they're, there's a blindness there. They're not understanding who the Messiah is. They're rejecting it with their mind, and they are blinded because of their unbelief. And he says that that veil can be removed when you turn to Christ. See, the veil that, that blinded their minds is not referring to uh, an inability to sift through the Scriptures or a need to be irresistibly chosen by God. That's not it at all. One author said this, The veil 
that covers Israel's heart does not refer to a cognitive inability because of a lack of spiritual endowment, but to a volitional inability as a result of a hardened disposition. What does that mean? It means because they rejected Christ, they couldn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah. He said that sounds like circular reasoning, but that's what he's saying right here. When is that veil removed? Verse 16. I'm sorry, let me back up to verse 15. But even under this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it says it shall turn to the Lord. Um, That it is they, when one shall turn to the Lord, when people, it's really in... uh, uh, I would say the, the word there in verse 15 is the antecedent. That's, that's what it's talking about. So when they shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. I find that absolutely interesting. When you turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. I remember when that veil was lifted from my heart. Do you remember a time in your life that that veil was removed? It was on a Wednesday evening service at Tabernacle Baptist Church. Rod Bell gave an altar call after Wednesday night service. And I was taken back to a back room by Marine with the name Billy Arney. He shared Christ with me. And I remember him sharing Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Here's what those verses say. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That revolutionized my thinking about how I can get to heaven. We wander through this life thinking, if I'm just good enough, if I can do something, if I can earn grace with God, if I can make Him happy with my life, then He's going to let me into heaven. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. And that night, those words became alive to me. I mean, the Spirit uh, really spoke those to my heart, and I had an understanding for the first time about what Christ had done for me now You know my testimony. I grew up in a church that explained to me who Jesus was and what he had done, but I had never put my dependence, my trust, in his finished work on the cross. I'd never done that. But that night I understood, and that veil was removed from my heart, and I put my faith and my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, over the last 30 years, I have come to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, I've seen him ever so clearly through all of Scripture, as we study. He is the central theme. He is the the, uh, uh, consummation of all the Scripture. He is the thread that ties all of Scripture together. Has that veil been removed from your heart? Was there a time in your life where you understood your need for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, in order to go to heaven? I'm not asking if you know who Jesus is. I'm not even asking if you have prayed a prayer. I'm asking, was there a time where you put your dependence on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for your sins? Maybe you're just starting to get an understanding. I believe if you ask God to strip away that veil, He'll do it and He'll show you truth. Now, when we turn to Christ, the veil is removed. Look at verse 17. 
Now the Lord is that spirit. Now I know it's capitalized, but it's not talking about the spirit of God here. Remember when we talked about the difference between the law and the spirit? He is telling us who is the fulfillment of the, of the law. When we go back and we, we can look uh, at, at uh, verse 6, he says, who also had made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, let me put it this way, but of the Lord. Okay, do you see how that can be interchanged? Uh, the same thing in, in, in verse 7, but if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glory so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold uh, the face for glory of his countenance, which was done away, how shall not the ministration of the Lord be rather glorious? Now, I'm not doing harm. I'm just showing you that it's interchangeable there. Because if you start making verse 17 that the Lord and the Spirit, yes, they are one because of the Trinity, but we can have a lot of problems with their individual uh, uh, and respective purposes or responsibilities in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all God. And, and Jesus is Jehovah. So I, I can't explain it all to you, but I know that if we say that this is the Spirit, we can confuse the Spirit's ministry as well as the Lord's ministry that is clearly defined in Scripture. So I believe Paul here is finishing, he's getting ready to tie up his argument, and he's saying that Jesus, the Lord, is that Spirit that I've been talking about up till now. He is the opposite of the law. He is that which brings life. He is better than the old. He compared uh, to, to Jesus, the law has no glory at all. And then he writes this, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Before you got saved, you were the servant of sin. You could not say no. Oh, you might be able to hold out for a while. There might be some changes you made to your life, but you were the child of the devil and your will was bound to sin. But when we have Christ, we have liberty. Not to go do whatever we want as far as our flesh wants, but liberty to serve God like we never had before. People have taken this idea of liberty and they have, have thrown it right out the window with the idea that, well, I can just do what I want to do. Well, let me tell you, if you're walking with the Lord, you're going to want to please the Lord. But when you're walking in the flesh, you can't. Be in the Spirit. So if you're walking in the flesh and you say, well, I have the liberty to do whatever I want to do, and you're in the flesh, it doesn't mean you have the right to sin against God. That's not what liberty is. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes to the Galatian church, he says that, that there is a liberty that has been given. And when you get down to verse 13, he says, don't use that liberty as an offense to sin or an occasion to sin. So we don't have liberty to sin, we have this freedom, this newfound freedom to please God in ways that we never could before we accepted Christ. As a lost person, you cannot please God with your life, period. You must be a Christian to please God with your life. Listen, that's not what I think. 
That's not just my philosophy of life. That's what the Bible teaches. Now he gets down to his last argument. Verse 18. But we all, with open face. There's a contrast here between verse 14 and verse 18. What is the contrast? Those that were reading the Old Testament had a, 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 the veil untaken away. But now we, after we receive Christ, have that veil removed. Beholding as in a glass. Now, in Paul's day, they didn't have mirrors like what we have today. They would shine up brass to be able to, to see their reflection. But this idea of a mirror is something that's going to reflect uh, their reflection back to them. Okay? Uh, what could be the mirror that we look into to be able to see the glory of God? Well, James, in chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, tells us it's the Word of God. In verse 23 of chapter 1 of James, it says, For if any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth and continue therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. It's when we spend time in this book that we get to know what God expects from our lives. And as we uh, walk with him, well, let me, let me get a little bit further. It says, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, the splendor, the wonderfulness of the Lord are changed. That word is only used four times in the entire New Testament. Four times. Two times are in the Gospels, and one time, one other time, is used in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And it carries this idea of a, a uh, constant process of change. When we get saved, we're not instantaneously conformed to the image of Christ completely. Now, from a certain aspect, from, from our uh, positional sense, we are as righteous as Christ is. But from the practical sense, we are 10,000 light years away from His perfection. But yet, as we grow, as we see ourselves uh, in God's Word, and we see how that we need to change and how we need to, to be doers of the Word and not hearers only, and we start incorporating truth into our life, there becomes and starts a change in our lives. Somebody once said, I don't know who said it, I like it, says, I'm not everything that I should be, but thank God I'm not everything I used to be. And so that, that word change talks about from the inside out. We have a lot of people trying to, to go from the outside in. We talked about that this morning when Moses was reflecting the glory of God. It can't start from the outside in. It has to start from the inside and work its way out. Listen, that, that truth will affect so many different areas of your life if you will grab a hold of it. It'll affect the way you raise your children. Are you trying to change behavior or are you trying to get a hold of their heart? There's a difference. 
So it says that we're changed into the same image. Same image as whom? As the Lord. It's a lot like what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, right? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We want to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be more like Him tomorrow than we were today. More like Him two weeks from now than we were two weeks ago. Right? There should be a steady progression. But then look what he finishes with. Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The law did not have the power to transform. That's why it was a ministry of death. It could not give life. But we serve Christ. We're given life. Eternal life. A new life. And in that, we are changed more like Him as we spend time with Him in His Word. But look who does the changing. Is it you? Do you just need to try harder? Do you just need to, to have more effort? No. It says, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Spirit does the changing. And because of that, we can put ourselves in a place of blessing. We co-labor with God, with our sanctification. That, that idea of changing from glory to glory just carries the idea of changing from one degree of glory to another. There is a practical, what we call practical sanctification. There is a growth. Now, unfortunately, here's how our Christian life looks like sometimes. Looks like it ought to be at Carowinds, okay? That's not how it's supposed to be. I'm just saying that's the reality of it sometimes. But that glory to glory is a result of the time that we spend with God. And let His glory reflect through us to the world around us. His last argument is the Spirit is better because it makes us more like Jesus. Only the gospel transforms lives. Only the gospel, only what Jesus Christ has done can forgive sins. It's better. And you have access to it. Praise the Lord for the gospel. Praise the Lord for the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God that we can become more like him. Now here's the question I have to ask. He says in verse 18, we all, he's saying whether you're an apostle, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a church member, all of us now, if you've been born again, no longer have the veil across your heart. And as you behold in a glass the mirror of God's word, the glory of the Lord, you are changed into the same image from one degree to another. You're becoming more like the Lord as the Spirit does a work in your life. But let me ask you this question. When was the last time you looked in the mirror and said, I need to make a change? When's the last time you did something that was a direct result of the time that you spent with God? You say, I need to start doing this and letting God use that. Remember, we can plow the field we can sow, we can put the seed in, but God has to give 
the sun and the rain. It's God that gives the increase. That doesn't relieve us from having to do any work. It relieves us from being responsible for the harvest. That is left up to God. I remember when I first started tithing. It's a hard step. I was a very young Christian. I was really in my early 20s. I'd never given anything of that substance to the church before. Well, I learned I wasn't giving it to the church. When I obeyed that and I started doing that, do you know what God started doing? He started teaching me principles about stewardship that I was not ready for before I had started surrendering to giving. Now, that's just one area of life. But you can look in your, your Christian life, and it may be that you say, Lord, I'll do this, or I'll do this, uh, uh, listen, uh, but I'm not going to go soul winning. I'm not going to share my faith. Listen, when you surrender to that, you're going to find out God's going to teach you a lot of other things in that area. But as long as you stiff arm Him, you're not going to grow from glory to glory. And whether it's stewardship or soul winning, any aspect of the Christian life, when we stiff arm the Lord, there's not going to be any growth in that area. Paul makes a great argument, several of them, but it all culminates with the idea of us being transformed to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you more like the Lord today than you were a year ago today? If not, what are you going to do different? You can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. Somebody called that insanity. Really, it's just silliness. But we get in a rut, and we just expect things just to show up different. No, we have to be different. And we have to ask God to help us 